Okay. We get to pick up the drama of Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome in Acts chapter 28. Uh, By the way, as I had mentioned before, because I post these lectures up on the InterAltar website uh, every month, every week if I can, uh, there's a variety of people around the country that listen to this for some reason. Uh, And one person, let me actually read from the email, Um, for those of you who missed our uh, by the way, there's no song today. Oh. Okay, so there's no Gilligan's Island, and there's no Taylor Swift, so just prepare. She uh, writes, enjoyed your rendition of the Gilligan's Island contrafactum. Well, whatever that means. Anyway, um, for all you land lovers in Arizona, here's a little help with nautical knowledge. I'm not a big sailor, but I been a handful of times. I do live in a peninsula state surrounded by four of the five great lakes and people talk. Do you remember when we were talking about the travels and the scripture says that the boat was on the lee side? And I said, well, I looked it up and that's the left side of the boat. No, it's not. So I stand here before you um, condemning Mr. Google. Because she writes, don't trust Mr. Google. (laughs) The answer came up wrong when I Googled it. The Lee side is not necessarily the left side. The Lee side is the side away from the wind. And I should have known that because being in high school in Hawaii on Oahu, we always talked about the windward side of the island. Well, that's the North Shore. That's where the big waves are. That's where the wind comes from. The wind comes from the north, blows south into Honolulu over the mountains to the leeward side. So you have the windward and the leeward, and the lee side of a boat is the, or an island, is the side away from the wind. So when they were traveling and they were trying to get around Crete, as you see in your map, they went to the lee side, even though the land is on the right side of the boat. So thank you to Robin Monroe for that. And she's probably going to hear this and is wondering why I quoted her by name. But anyway, there we go. So that's just to correct a previous error, which I seem to do every week uh, now that we have people all over the country listening to us. Uh, I have to be, be, be more careful. All right. So we left it last week in the first part of chapter 28, verses 1 through 6, where they had finally gotten to shore. You know, Paul's bundling up the sticks, and there's a snake in the sticks, and it fastens itself to his hand, and everyone, at least the locals, thought he was going to bloat up and die. Uh, I had actually forgot to make a reference to someone in our class who has been bitten. So cat bite. it was a cat bite, not a but did you did you rear up and have the cat dangling from your hand? <laughs> and we were waiting 
for you to blow up and die. <laughs> but she had a vicious bite that basically, you know, debilitated you for quite a while. It got infected and all sorts of terrible things. And we're glad that you're back and using both hands now. But you can see how something just can suddenly just rear up and just be a horrible situation. Well, they think that he's going to die. He doesn't. And in ver at the end of verse 6, it says, so now they changed their mind because they first thought he was a murderer because he'd been bitten by a snake. Now he's a god. <laughs> Quite, a <laughs> Quite a switch. As I said, the fickle nature of our, our public. You can be the Colorado uh, Buffaloes and be at the top of your game with Deion Sanders as your coach, and then you get slaughtered yesterday by Oregon, and suddenly he's no longer in the news. Well, that's the fickle nature of the public's opinion. It keeps going, however, in verse 7. So remember, we're on the island of Malta, that little tiny island there off the, uh, the coast of Sicily. Remember to refer to your map so you know where we are because we're going to finish the journey very quickly here. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island. That is the Greek word protos, protos, depending on how you pronounce it. And his name was Publius. The archaeologists have discovered an inscription on the island of Malta dated to around the first century talking about the protos, like the mayor of the island, or the governor of the island. So this connected right here to the scriptures saying, well, that's what they called him. They didn't call him governor. They called him protos, Publius, who received us probably into his home and entertained us hospitably for three days. Now, did he just receive Paul and his retinue and maybe his guard. No, he probably received all 200 people. They took care of the shipwrecked group. And if he's the governor, he probably had a large house and you know, a way to house people and he took care of them all for at least three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. Interesting phrase considering who wrote this book. Luke is a physician. He uses dysentery. That's a very specific diagnosis. He probably may have said, man, this guy's really, he's got something unusual. Well, in Malta, there was something at the time called Malta fever. This was later diagnosed as brucelliosis or micrococcus melatonesis. I'm sure you all know what that means. Um, but it was a fever that would only hit those in Malta. Kind of like valley fever in our area. We're the only ones that kind of get this form of it. And some feel that it's just a little <laughs> and I, like flu. Others, like my dad, almost died of it. And it turned into a coxium pneumonia in his lungs and began to fill up his lungs from valley fever. Well, in the 19th century, 
This Malta fever was traced to the milk of the goats on the island. Who knew? Those nice little creatures. Oh, their nose nice and sweet, and they're giving us our morning milk, and they're killing everybody. A vaccine for it was developed in 1887, and if untreated, the sickness can last up to four months and sometimes two to three years. So this was no small little fever that is mentioned here in the scriptures, and it's likely that's what this was. Paul visited him in the middle of verse 8 here and prayed, putting his hands on him, healed him. The word healed there is the Greek word eomai, I-A-O-M-A-I, eomai, which means instantaneous. It was as as he touched him, bang, he was healed. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases came to him and they were cured. Different word. So you have healed is instantaneous. The word cured is the word therapuo for therapeutic or therapy, which suggests it isn't the instantaneous healing services because then everything would have been done in just, you know, a couple days. But that it's very possible Luke's gift was also being used as a healer. So there's this suggestion here, there's the instantaneous miraculous healings, but there's also, you could still consider any medical healing miraculous. I mean, when you think about it, the fact that I even know to give you this to handle that, that's somewhat miraculous. To have Luke use two different words for healing, very specifically here. And it says, they honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And you go, when they were about to sail, wait a minute, they just got off the boat. No, verse 11 tells you how long they were on the island. They wintered there. Remember the whole journey that turned into the shipwreck was to go from, if you look at your map, find Crete in the very dead center. They were trying to go from Fair Havens to Phoenix, not Arizona. So they wanted to go from Fairhaven to Phoenix, which was a very short 30-mile trip, and they get offshore, and the storm came up and blew them into the middle of the ocean, or the Mediterranean Sea, and they were 14 days at sea. They were just trying to go up the coast, but they were needing to go to Phoenix to winter there because there was a harbor that could handle the ship, that could keep, you know, protect it from the various storms of the winter, and suddenly they turn into this, you know, massive journey that ends them up all the way over into Malta, where now they have went, now they're wintering, and they were there for three months. The, um, it says here, verse 11, after three months we set sail in a ship that had wintered to the island, a ship of Alexandria. I need to stop there and just to give you a little bit more detail. 
the um, ancient historian Pliny the Elder wrote that during this time, the sailing season opened on the sixth day before the Ides of February. Not the Ides of March, but the Ides of February. That would be February 8th. So then you back up three months, which means they shipwrecked in November. Makes perfect sense because they left Jerusalem approximately in early September. I'm sorry, late September, early October, right before the season would begin to turn, but still safe enough. And then it turned, obviously, into this massively long journey, ending up in Malta, and now they're there for three months. And they get on a ship of Alexandria. Weren't they just on a ship of Alexandria? Yes, the one that wrecked, the one that they had to dump the entire cargo off the end of the, uh, end of the, the boat so they could even get to shore. Alexandria was a major um, source of grain for Italy, for all of the empire of Rome. If you think of your, well, if you want to look at your map, can you find Alexandria on your map? Well, it's not there, but you can guess. It's in Egypt. So the idea of going from Egypt, the kind of the breadbasket of the Mediterranean, they would just go up to Crete, probably across over to Malta. If they needed to winter there, they would. And then they would carry on their way. He just got on a different ship. This particular one says it had the twin gods as a figurehead. Now if you go over you, if you have a King James Bible, you will find those gods are named because the King James uses a different Greek manuscript, um, uh, a later manuscript than what we have here. Those twin gods are Castor and Pollux. So C-A-S-T-O-R, like castor oil, um, and Pollux, P-O-L-L-U-X. These are the Gemini twins. So when you look up in the sky and you see the constellation of Gemini, that's Castor and Pollux. These were considered the, let's just call them, the patron gods of sailors. That if you're on your ship and you can look up in the sky and see Castor and Pollux, it's a good night for sailing. And you will be safe because you can see where you're going. They obviously carved those two gods on the front of the ship. You've seen the ships with the, the, you know, the woman or Neptune or something in the front of the ship. So this is obviously a pagan ship, a grain ship that's going to head to Rome. They take off. Putting in at Syracuse, New York. Uh, isn't it interesting how we end up with towns and cities in the United States that are named after European cities? It's just kind of weird to go to Athens, Georgia. Um, anyway, uh, but you have Syracuse, and you can find Syracuse on your map. It's right there in the middle of Sicily. It's the main port. Typically, ships would winter in Sicily, not in Malta. 
but obviously the ship that was on the way, that's as far as they could get before that storm that blew Paul into the island of Malta hit. So they probably saw it coming and went, we need to get to shore. And let's just winter here now. Let's just wait this out. They put in Syracuse, stayed there for three days, probably unloaded some cargo, because this was the capital of the Roman province of Sicily. In verse 13, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And you can look and find Regium. That's at the edge of Sicily. Um, make sure I got this here. Okay, Regium was the, let's just call it the guard post for that seven mile wide canal you see right there. That waterway, not a canal, but the waterway between Sicily and Italy is only seven miles. So if you have an invading force from Greece that wants to attack Rome, they could go all the way around Sicily or they shortcut past Regium. This is a very important military post in that time to protect that waterway. And then they, again, they stopped there. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. Wait a minute, didn't the south wind spring up earlier in our journey? Yeah, it took them from Caesarea to Sidon on the first day. And they were, ah, oh, this is going to be a wonderful trip. Well, this time the south wind is a good thing because the south wind sprang up and on the second day we came to Putioli, right? Is that, did I pronounce it right? Putioli? I talk, you need to talk in Italian. Putioli. There we go. <laughs> Put the right emphasis on the right syllable. Anyway, so they get to Puccioli. That's 180 miles in two days. It took them 14 days to get from Crete to Malta, which is 500 days. That's, in other words, they went 90 miles a day instead of this horrific storm where they were maybe making 30 miles a day, if they were lucky. And it wasn't a straight line either. But they get in, into uh, Putioli, which is the seaport of Naples. This is the Bay of Naples, it's right here. This is considered, at the time, one of the major shipping ports for all of Italy. Remember, Rome is not on the coast. So Rome didn't have a harbor. It's a, it's a city on a hill inland. There were a number of other uh, harbors that were built during the Roman Empire. This one just happened to be the largest one at the time. There were a couple others that, you know, vied for its attention. This particular one is known for its sulfur springs, which meant, you know, like um, saunas and things were built and a lot of very wealthy Romans would build their villas here. Here's another interesting little thing, and this will make sense when you see verse 14. Archaeological 
um, evidence suggests there was a very large Jewish population in this city, very large. And the question is why? Well, in 49 AD, Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of the city of Rome, suggesting maybe a bunch of them just took their money and went to the coast. You know, they, they relocated. They weren't kicked out of all of Rome, they were just kicked out of the city of Rome in 49 AD. Yeah. So at this point, they separated, they got off the boat, um, Paul and the guards, Right. Right. This is why verse 14, we've, we've, when they're in Puglioli, they found brothers and were invited to stay with them for a week. He's still under arrest. He still has his guards with him. You can imagine this guard is probably kind of friendly by now because Paul has saved them all and was the leader of them, giving them hope when hope was lost and they stayed there for seven days you imagine I mean seven days worth of TED talks I mean Paul talks <laughs> imagine he probably maybe he went to a synagogue maybe he met with some of the members in the Jewish community it says they were they found brothers which suggests they were other people of the faith and they spent a full week together. That's, that's kind of cool. And then almost a, you know, like a side note. And so we came to Rome. Well, wait, look at your map. So we came to Rome. They didn't go by boat. They walked or were on wagons or whatever. It's 143 miles. Uh, let's see, what's the, dis the distance between Phoenix and Flagstaff? 157. About 157 miles, that was very specific. Uh, <laughs> I would say you know the answer. <laughs> so about the, about the same distance and going up and down hills and in and out and around, well, they traveled on the Appian Way. The Appian Way ran from Puccioli to Rome and then across um, Rome uh, all the way later the Appian Way picks up in Macedonia. Yeah. So when they're traveling like this with Paul and uh, they have to stop at inns and stuff like that, is Paul paying for the inn? We don't know, but it's suggested later in Acts that Paul was paying for his house when he's in Rome, even under house arrest. So maybe. Hard to know because he's got other people with him. He has, um, well, there's Luke and what's my mind just went blank. I'm, it's just Lisa and I were just talking how terrible I am with names. Um, the uh, Greek who was with him. I can't hear it. Sorry. E started with an E. Oh, Archelaus. No. So whatever his name is. Anyway, the guy who got, who got beat up in, uh, in the temple was with them. So you have at least those two, maybe five or six more that are traveling with them. And so who's paying for their food? Who's putting them up? It's hard to know. It really, there's no indication 
but it's a great question because either that or they're sleeping out on the you know on the road well they didn't have a an rv so they couldn't just hook up and you know they were literally traveling um and they come to rome okay it took five or six days to walk 143 miles and verse 15 and the brothers there when they heard about us came as far as the form of appius and three taverns to meet us the forum of appius or the market of appius is 40 miles south and the three taverns is 30 miles south so someone ran ahead and was saying paul paul is paul is on his way here and they're like whoa he's never been here before we have this great letter from him from a couple years ago we're still reading it every day this is amazing he's on his way and they come to see him it also could be it doesn't say it but remember the husband and wife he greeted at the end of the book of romans priscilla and aquila they're old friends you can almost imagine he's on his way we have to go see him so they meet them on the way there and you go well, what's the three taverns yeah the big you know the big bars that they went to um, it's just a word for inn it's basically a roadside inn where they would stay and in this particular area there were multiple ones and they were called the three taverns a typical roadside stop on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. Notice it's no longer a centurion. It's now a soldier assigned to him. The centurion, that would be overkill. You know, a leader of a hundred handling one prisoner. It's most likely just the single one that's now with him. But he's in prison at this point. He's able to stay by himself, but he is under guard probably until they figure out what should we do with him. So let's read, starting in verse 17, what's going on a little bit more. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews and when they had gathered, he said to them, and I had to pause here, he called, Paul called them to him. He didn't go visit them, which suggests he's under, either it's house arrest or he's in a prison. We're not sure at this point which it is. But he asks them to come to him. And these are the local leaders of the Jews, not the local leaders of the church. So he's bringing the Jewish people, which he normally would go where whenever he visited town? The synagogue, to talk to the Jewish leaders because he's going to be witnessing to them. Paul's in chains and he's still preaching. For goodness sake, man, you know, give it a rest. No, he doesn't. He's not going to give it a rest. This is who he is. This is his calling. He asks these guys to come to him and he says to them brothers 
Though I've done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, verse 18. When they examined me, they wished, wished to set me at liberty. There was no reason for death penalty in my case, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I have no charge to bring against my nation. And for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel I'm wearing this chain. What a great opening to a witnessing and a great sermon to be talking to them. And they said, we have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Now, isn't that interesting? So I had to sit there and, of course, as I typically do, I make up things and I teach them to you as if they're facts. Yeah, you knew it. You figured it out, finally. Could it be that the letter from Jerusalem to the Jewish people in Rome was on the ship and was traveling with them and was one of the things that was dumped overboard? We don't know. I mean, how did you move mail or letters from one place to the next. It was either by boat or by overland, and it would take forever. Overland, you would cut it it short with the sea, but then you have the problem of wintering and the storms. No wonder there are so many manuscripts lost from this era. If you think anything that was of communication was on board the ship from Crete that ended up in Malta, it was dumped overboard and did not survive the trip. They didn't stuff the letter in their pocket or the scroll in their pocket. It's gone. So any communication otherwise would have gone up. I mean, if you want to look at your map and try to think, well, it might have gone up through Myra where they stopped, then got stuck on another ship or on some sort of train, not train, but a, a, oh, I know, some overland group, and they made their way to Ephesus, and then they had to go up to Troas, and then up to Philippi, across the Thessalonica to Berea. Oh, and then they had to cross the Adriatic Sea. Yeah, it kind of was like the U.S. Post Office during the pandemic. I mean, I don't know how many times we had mail lost during that time. I had <clears throat> rent checks. I had <clears throat> things that couldn't even go from midtown of Phoenix to Glendale. They just disappeared. You're going, where did it go? Well, we still don't know. If there's a breakdown in the ability of communication, these people saying, we don't know what you're talking about, is probably true. We've received no communication, no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. So why are you in chains? We, we, we desire to hear from you what your views are with regard to this sect. We know that everywhere is being spoken against. Oh, that's interesting. So Christianity is alive and well. 
Paul is known as one of the leaders and teachers of this, of the way. And these guys are curious. They probably have heard some things. Maybe they have had conversations with the, uh, the community in Rome. And so verse 23, they actually set a date. They scheduled it. We appointed a day for him. And they came to him at his lodging in great, greater numbers. And from morning to evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. How long did he teach? Middle of verse 23? Morning until evening. That's not just a 40-minute sermon. It's not a one-hour lecture from Steve Lobby. This is all day. And you can imagine that there's some that were there in the beginning and were there the entire day. There are others that would come in after they had done their work or whatever. They're coming in and now some of it's being repeated and there's you know, dialogue and argumentation and all this back and forth because it says he expounded or to, you, to dig into the background of the word to elaborate or to explain you could use any of those three words to translate the Greek word there he expounded, elaborated or explained and then he testified which means to solemnly declare the kingdom of God trying to convince or persuade them about Jesus. Fascinating. Yeah. So, so are the Jews at this point when they're talking about the sect, are they seeing this as like like this whole other religion popping up here? Or are they seeing this as um, heretical teaching? Or they see this as Judaism and this is just a a different form, like a ball, you know, or something? The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, they're hearing about it. Is this a heresy? Is it just some splinter thing? Because there's a bunch of stuff. When you think about Rome, it's cacophony of gods. Remember Paul in Mars Hill over in Greece dealing with the Greek philosophers? Well, that philosophy was in Rome. The gods were everywhere. And so this sect, now you have to be careful when you think of, it sounds like it's a pejorative as a negative term. That term was used to describe the Pharisees. It was also used to describe the Sadducees. It was used to describe the Jews. It's not, it's a, oh, it's a cult. It's not the same word. It's a sect that they don't understand. And is it an amalgam of all these things? We don't know. We're kind of curious. And here's someone who's, a rabbi, well-trained, probably has a good reputation, and they're going, you believe this stuff? Do you think it would be as bad, that they would look at it as bad as negatively, if it wasn't, if it wasn't for the fact, if he didn't bring Gentiles in? Probably, that's, what, that's one of the bugaboos, is you're bringing in these condemned people. And what are you doing? You can't. And in that group is a Greek. How can you have this foreigner, 
this non-Jew among your, your, your the, what's going on? And you can even see their reaction. Verse 24, some were convinced, but others disbelieved. That's kind of normal, right? <laughs> it would have been kind of odd if 100% of them went, oh, that's great, let's just join. And then verse 25, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement, and I'll get to that in a second, but they agreed, disagreeing among themselves. Let's go back in quick in history here to when Paul was before the Sanhedrin. And he's testifying about the accusations made against him. And he just simply talked about resurrection from the dead. And the Pharisees stood up and went, yes, it's a real thing. And the Sadducees stood up and went, no, it's not. And then they start fighting over it. And the Roman soldiers can't understand Hebrew. They just see that the whole room starts shouting at each other. And Paul's sitting there going, mm -hmm. yeah, you guys can't even agree among yourselves on this issue. And that's when the, the Roman centurion pulled him out and said, this is not healthy. This isn't going to work. We've got to do it a, di a different way. Well, here we are. My guess, it may have not have been Pharisees and Sadducees. It may have been bringing in Gentiles into the faith. And some agree and some disagree. You've got, they're, they're having conversations, but Paul left them with this statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, and then he quotes Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. And this is a verbatim quote from the Septuagint. Not from the, uh, the Hebrew text, it's from the Greek text of the Old Testament. Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Okay, that's kind of in your face, right? So let's note, note that this is not the first time this verse has been quoted in the New Testament. You may want to mark, mark this down. It's quoted six times. This is a very important key message of, of God to the people of Israel. It's quoted in Matthew 13, 14 and 15, Mark 4, verse 12, and Luke 8, verse 10. Now when I did the blended harmony that you guys all got, that's all found in day 12 because it's part of the parable of the sower of the seed. And it's repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 in that passage. So Jesus is saying it. Jesus' sayings have been passed down and are among his followers. It's also in John 
chapter 12, verse 40, which in the Harmony is day 29. It's a different sec- section of the scripture. It's also here in Acts 28. It is possibly quoted in Romans 11, verse 8. It's, it's not an exact quote, so he could actually be quoting from Isaiah 29 instead of Isaiah 6. So there's some converse, conversations of which Isaiah, but again, it's again a point where Isaiah is quoted as um, a way of condemning the Jewish people for their lack of willingness to hear the message and therefore it's going to go to the Gentiles. Then comes verse 30. And you want to go, wait, what? How long did he live there? Two whole years. Two years. At his expense. At his own expense, which goes back to Sandy's question earlier. So he had to rent a house and pay for it. We don't know if he's had his trial yet before Nero. We have no idea. It doesn't mention it. That means that from the time of Paul's arrest in Jerusalem to the end of verse 30 has been four years. Because remember, he was two years in Caesarea under arrest in the, um, the headquarters, uh, Herod's headquarters, or the procurator's headquarters, Festus and Felix. It's been four years. But he welcomed all who came to him. We don't know exactly what's being described here. We're assuming house arrest. We have no record. Well, let's just finish the verse. Um, Oh, by the way, before we get to that, I'd like us all to read together verse 29. Please read verse 29 with me. Uh, It's verse 29. It's not there, exactly. It's in your King James Bible, but not in this one. Um, Verse 29 in the King James reads, And when he had said these words, the Jews departed, having much dispute amongst themselves. Does that sound like a repeat of what we just read? Yeah. Yeah, and that's what most people think, is that either someone's eye dropped down, because it's in later manuscripts, this verse 29, but it's not in earlier ones. And so you wonder if a copyist, you know, bleary-eyed, lack of caffeine, dropped down and then just basically rewrote the same verse from earlier and it got stuck in there and then was repeated because it was in a extant manuscript. So let's not worry about that other than they say, modern translations take the verse out, but it doesn't really take away any meaning here. It's not a crucial verse. I say, while he's there for these two years, he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, and without hindrance. Interesting. Unencumbered. He had nothing to stop him. Now, you might say, oh, that's the end of Acts, so we can all go home now. No. 
I looked it up. We started teaching Acts chapter 1, verse 1 on July 23rd, 2017. It has taken us six years to get here. Uh, now, it wasn't a direct line because we went Acts and then Galatians, then James, then Acts, then Thessalonians, then Acts, then first, first Corinthians, then pandemic, then first Corinthians finish, second Corinthians, Acts, Romans, Acts, and here we are at the end of Acts. So we have been working through this kind of in a meandering way for six years. It's quite extraordinary. But wait, there's more. <laughs> because you have the question, why does Acts end here? I mean, he could have ended it at the end of verse 28 with a shout at the Jews for not believing. Well, it's kind of a little epilogue here. He lived for two years and preached and teached and proclaimed and with all boldness and it's wonderful and you kind of go, you turn the page and you go, where's the rest of the story? What, what just happened? Um, John MacArthur said, though it ends abruptly, it's not incomplete. If you think about that, that's a really brilliant way of putting it. The story ends. Acts starts with the beginning of the early church, the growth of the church. And one of the things of the church would that it would spread through all the earth. And one of the ways to do that is Rome, because it's the center of the known earth, the kingdom, the empire, I guess was probably a better word. And it's now complete in that Paul is there, a place where he had indicated he wanted to go. Luke is his companion. Luke knew his desires. Paul had obviously expressed it in the book of, the book of Romans itself. And here he is. But the question is, what happened next? And we have no idea. There's no third book. You have Luke, you have Acts. We don't have Paul. We don't have, see, Luke's goal was not to write the life of Paul. Luke's goal was to write the Acts of the apostles. So he talks about not just Paul, he talks about Peter, he talks about the others. It's not just a book about Paul. We kind of made it that way because we would chronologically bounce into the letters of Paul because it made sense. And we have the journeys of Paul, mission group, missionary journey one, two, and three. But there are people who call this the fourth missionary journey, which is your final page in your handout. There we go. Now, I messed up this handout. Um, before I printed it and then I printed it and didn't realize how I messed it up until I was at home last night it was like 9 45 and I'm looking at this going phooey 
<laughs> I suppose I could get in the car, go back to the office, and retype it up and print it out for you, but no. I love you guys, but no. <laughs> um, there, I have a, a few different cities listed on this printout when we think Paul journeyed to after he was cleared by Nero. There's two very strong traditions. One is Paul never left Rome. He was under arrest until he was executed. There's a second tradition, which is probably more accurate, is that he was, you know, he probably got in front of Nero and, why, why am I dealing with this? Oh, those Jews are such idiots. Go away, you're done, you're cleared. Because there was no charges against him of which there was evidence that could condemn him. And he's a Roman citizen. He hadn't broken any Roman laws. And, you know, they're accusing him of sedition and all these other things. And he's just like, you know, i got better things to do. i got a city to burn. You know? <laughs> which actually didn't happen for a few years after this. But if he was there for two years... That puts us right around 62 A.D. And between 62 A.D. and there is, again, scholars aren't sure, but we're not sure whether Paul died in 64 or 67. One of the two, depending on, the, on which tradition you have. Did he go to Spain? It's very possible. In fact, if you'll notice, when I have in the middle of your handout, you've got Spain here, that Clement of Rome, who was, who was the bishop of Rome, from 88 AD to 99 AD, only 30 years after Paul was there. In 1 Clement 5.7 wrote that Paul reached the extreme limit of the West, which would be Spain. So that would be similar to me today talking about something that happened in 1993. And I could probably speak to the history of something that happened in Phoenix in 1993 because I lived here, or I heard about it, or I know somebody who lived here at the time and asked him about it. I mean, 1992 was when we came to Camelback Bible Church. I mean, I can point to a time that's within my time frame. So if Clement had heard a rumor that he'd gone to Spain, and now he's making it up, that wouldn't make any sense, because there'd be people right going, wait, he didn't go there. I'm, I'm, I was with him. So it's very possible he went to Spain. If you look at some of the verses, and I, I have a line in the middle of the, of the handout, there is a second reconstruction of his journeys uh, put together by Harold Honer, who was a uh, New Testament professor at Dallas Seminary for many years. Um, he has the preeminent book on the chronological aspects of Jesus. Uh, but he obviously wrote his dissertation on the apostles, the apostolic age in 1965. And he indicates that after Rome, he went to Colossae first. And you go, well, why Colossae? Because 
the last verse of Philemon. I'll find it for you. I can. The last verse of Philemon reads, last verses, I should say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. In other words, I'm on my way, and Philemon is in Colossae. That's why we have the book of Colossians. Um, He writes to Timothy about being in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 1.3, I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. He gets into Macedonia or Troas. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Or Miletus, which he visited earlier in Acts chapter 20, where he writes, Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. In other words, he's traveling around and talking about it. When we describe the letters of Paul, we describe the prison epistles as Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. The pastoral epistles are grouped under First and Second Timothy and Titus. They're not called prison epistles. So the idea is that he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon while under arrest, probably during those two years, in Rome. Then when he was released, he went back around and visited various places for a few years. We're not quite sure when. The question is where did he get arrested and brought back to Rome and then executed? The main theory is it's Nicopolis, which is in eastern, sorry, um, western Greece. You see, I've got it there in in the middle here. In Titus 3.12, it said, when I sent Artemis or Tychius to you, do your best to meet, come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Well, Nicopolis, if you look at your map, it's a, a little bit to the left of the word Macedonia. Kind of over on the coast. It's in, it isn't in the book of Acts. It was not part of his normal journey, but there's that suggestion at one point in his travels that he went to Illyricum, which would be north of that space. Now there's three Nicopolises in ancient ancient world. There's one here on the north, which I mentioned, and Chrysostom believes that this is where he was. The other one is in uh, Cilicia in eastern Turkey, and the other one is in Palestine. But it makes most sense that he was in in Greece, and the tradition is that he was a part of another riot something else came up and he got arrested and was taken to Rome. This time was right around the time when Nero had lost his mind and became a despot. Prior to that, he wasn't the greatest ruler in the world, but he wasn't this crazy man who was burning things and uh, killing Christians, but now he was. And he was also killing Jews. 
actually. He was kind of after them all. Anybody who was creating foment and rebellion, he was wiping them out. There's a theory about the fire that was set for Nero that he was actually wanting to clear land to build something. And so rather than going in and trying to buy up the land, he just set it on fire. <clears throat> and then brought in the soldiers and went, well, you've got no home, so go find another one. This is ours now. And the portion of, uh, the, of Rome where the major part of the fire was later used what was his name? I can't remember the name. The next was a Vespasian who built the Colosseum. The space where the major part of the fire under Nero was later where the Colosseum was built. In fact, I had a possibility of showing you a map of Rome until I looked at it and realized I can't show you that map right now because it had the Colosseum in it. And it wasn't built yet. It wasn't built until the 70s much later after this. Historically, 70 AD was when Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome and the Jewish empire, the Jewish people were crushed because they were rebelling. So Paul, if you died around 67, that makes sense chronologically. And uh, again, tradition is that he was beheaded but there's another character in this story that you have to wonder. What about Peter? Just in our history here, the Roman Catholic Church claims that Peter was the head. He was the founder. And every pope, every, in fact, you know, in Italian, the word pope means father, every father of the church came out of or after Peter. So that suggests Peter was there. We don't know when. There's no record. There's allusions. And it starts showing up in literature about 100 to 200 years later. That's long enough for memories to fade and traditions to be built up. So that would be me, me if I was thinking about it, about me standing here and going, well, I know exactly what happened in 1823. I have records. I have photographs. No, you don't. You know, you're making it up like half of your class is made up. Um, so there's this possibility of traditions and stories being retold and retold. Was Peter there? Probably. There's no reason to say he wasn't. But we can't say it definitively he was here at this time, at this place. When was he executed? Tradition has that he was executed around 64, maybe 67 with Paul. The tradition that he was crucified upside down, <clears throat> that he chose that, right? No prisoner had a choice of how they were be to be crucified. They were never asked. It's like, you know, how would you like to die today? You know, um, anyone who was crucified upside down, and it happened frequently actually, was the ultimate humiliation 
because they were completely dehumanized and they died quicker because of the blood rushing to their head. Um, so there's also, you know, it's funny when I, you start digging into ancient history, oh, the splintering of ideas. It's actually kind of fun and fun to watch the scholastic cage matches where these guys come up and they get very firm. This is exactly how it happened. And the next guy got up. This is exactly how it happened. And the third guy comes up. This is exactly how it happened. And I'm sitting here going, I don't know how it happened. It's one of these, or maybe it's a mix of them. But we do know that the church survived. The church never waned. God's providence in the church never stopped. The leaders were being beheaded, killed. James, the brother of Jesus, the head of the Jerusalem church, was killed by the Romans in 62. We have that date. Could it be that that's when Peter left? Because he, James and Peter, ran the Jerusalem church. We don't know. We don't have the details, but we do know, like I said, that God is still sovereign. God is still in charge of his church. And even today, we, we look at this. I, I just heard in a, an entire discussion about how did Rome survive? Because they were not a military threat. They were religious. And so the country of Italy just let them be. And so they were never a threat to the authority of the Italian people. They actually were a guide to them. And so when the country could be pulled left and right, it survived because it was the focal point of the church after. Constantine. Well, that's another church history lesson which we'll do maybe after we finish Revelation in the year 2035. We don't know. There's the theory that the two years that he was with Paul is when he finished the book of Acts. Because remember, the theory is that when Paul was under arrest in Caesarea, that that's when Luke went out and interviewed all the people in Jerusalem and Palestine and Nazareth and ended up with his research for the book of Luke. It's possible. After that, we have a mention of Luke twice. I think there's once in Philemon and then I, so one other place, I didn't write it down, where he's mentioned. So he's still around. Luke is with him in 2 Timothy at the end. 2 Timothy, that's where it is. 2 Timothy. So he's mentioned as still being with him. He probably was his traveling companion for the rest of his life. Would he have uh, asked Paul to review his writings? Probably. You know, who knows? Uh, we, we, again, we don't have any other than speculation that it could be he would go to Paul and say, so when you put your hand and when, when the snake was biting you, what was happening? Because I didn't see it. Can you describe it to me? He says, yeah, it was this little, tiny little thing. Yeah, I just shook it off. You know? <laughs> uh, we don't know. 
but there is obvious there's details in the Acts and in Luke that's just eyewitness accounts. There's no question that they were eyewitness accounts. So anyway, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together for the, again, the extraordinary opportunity to study your word and to dig into the, the details to, to realize that you put these here for a reason, that to, to make the scriptures come alive, to realize this isn't just dry history. There's people involved. There's struggles, physical, emotional, spiritual struggles that we still reflect and we still struggle with today. But in your grace and in your providence, we come to this word and you speak to us in a new way.